Welcome to SCD Church's podcast. You can always join us for our live services Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings out in our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our services live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. Thanks so much for listening. Well, here uh, we're in week three of a series that we've been doing called Uncommon Sense. And uh, in this series, we've been looking at the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there's this book of Proverbs. You're not a Bible person, you don't know a whole lot about it. The book of Proverbs is uh, written by a guy named King Solomon, who was King David's son. And he had this special gift from God. He had insight. He had wisdom. And in, in this book, he gives all these little kind of insights into different arenas of life, pieces of wisdom that we can apply to our life. And so we've been looking at, for the last couple of weeks, what is wisdom? And then how do we apply it to different arenas? So last weekend, Doyle talked about uh, wisdom and parenting. Because obviously he, he did pretty good in parenting, I got to be honest. No? Okay. It's, anyway, all right. Uh, well, today we're going to be looking at another arena of our life, which we could probably all use some wisdom in, which is wisdom when it comes to our wealth, when it comes to our money. Now, I really like the topic of money, especially when it intersects with faith, because it's a part of my faith journey, actually, is figuring out how do I wrestle with this idea of uh, following Jesus, but also maybe making some money. So if you rewind about uh, 15 years ago, I had just recently graduated from college. I went to a Bible school because I was planning on being a pastor. And in fact, I was working at another church in the junior high department there. And, and uh, I also wanted to get married to Amy. The problem is, is when you're on staff as a junior high pastor, you're not making a whole lot of money, definitely not enough to be able to uh, provide for a wife, to get married, to buy a ring, you know, all those things that, you know, for some reason she wanted. And so uh, I decided I'm going to need to find like a side gig in order to make a couple bucks. And so I happened to connect with a family friend who said, you know, um, I sell these sports equipment things. Maybe you could try selling this. You can make a couple extra bucks. Because I was pretty good at selling things. I've always been bartering and buying and selling stuff to make a couple extra bucks. And so he said, why don't you try selling this for me? So he gave me some products to sell online. And I ended up selling this sports equipment pretty quick. And I came back and I said, hey, uh, I already sold all that stuff. He's like, really? I said, yeah, yeah give me some more stuff to sell. I, you know, I think I can do pretty good at this. Turns out um, I really enjoyed uh, selling things. And so as I was selling more and more sports products, um, I, uh, I just kept asking for, for more. And eventually, you know, kind of an entrepreneur, I launched with him this website and it started to take off. And before I knew it, um, this little side hustle where I was trying to make a couple extra bucks started to become double what I was making in ministry, and then triple, and then quadruple, and eventually it became this multi-million dollar business, and I went, how did that happen? And I'm in my mid-20s, and I never anticipated any of this, where I had purchased a home, uh, I was driving whatever car I wanted to, Amy and I were flying around the world, first class, being able to visit wherever, and I just thought, this worked out pretty well. Like, this is pretty awesome. You can tell where the story is going because I don't have any of those things anymore. Just like as a warning here, you can kind of see where this is headed. Um, and, so, uh, and so I had a decision to make. I'd always planned on being a pastor, but this business thing was working pretty good. And I liked making money. And there's a lot of fun things that I could do with that money. And so I began to question, well, maybe I should do this instead. So I started to wrestle with and pray and seek wise counsel and uh, about five years of that, I finally came to the conclusion, this isn't what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. Now, Amy helped me on this because she didn't like who I was becoming during this process. She thought that she married this guy um, who was studying to become a pastor, and instead I became a different guy who became more and more interested in money. In fact, it started to consume me so much that it started to put tension on our marriage 
And we had only been married for a couple years, and she was already starting to go, wait a minute, I don't think I can go a lifetime with this. This guy's driving me crazy. He is just becoming obsessed with making more and more and more money. And so as I was praying through it and figuring out, okay, well, God, what do you want me to do with my life? Um, what is it that I'm supposed to... That's a dangerous prayer. Because he may answer that prayer. And it may not be the answer that you were at least that you're looking for. Now, it's the right answer, but it may not be uh, a very comfortable answer. And so I had prayed, and then one day I woke up, and God just went, you're supposed to do ministry. And so I, I didn't make a, a good plan to exit. You know, remember I had a mortgage and car payments and all that kind of stuff? I'm kind of one of those where it says, like, okay, if I'm supposed to do this, let's just send it then. And so I woke up that day, and I said, I quit. I'm done. And so I quit. I'm not doing this anymore. I didn't have a plan of how to pay all of those bills. I didn't have anything, but I just said, you know what, God, I trust you. Let's do this. Let's go. And it was not easy. It was uncomfortable. It was painful. But I will tell you this. Uh, Amy and I discussed it last night. She said, you know, I would do that at the drop of a hat, even knowing what we know today and all the difficulties that we are going to experience and all the million times, because here's what happened. I went from being a person who was so anxious and fearful for the future because I had all these plans. I'm going to retire by this age and I'm going to accomplish these things to someone who has found an incredible amount of freedom financially. And it's not because I made money. All that was gone. I make a fraction of what I used to make. It all got, everything's gone. But I have not since that day thought about finances. And, and because of the freedom that I've experienced through that season, that's why I'm always excited to talk about money with people because it's something that just is such a, a point of stress for people. And I just say, you know what? If you'll just, if you'll just follow some simple instructions, you're going to be able to find freedom. No matter where your income is, no matter what, is you're going to be able to experience some incredible freedom in your finances if you'll just, if you'll just listen to this wisdom. So that's what we're going to do. Is we're going to look at what Solomon has to say. He was an incredibly wealthy man himself, and he has some great insight into uh, wealth. And um, I think a big part of what he has to say about wealth is really a warning. And Jesus was like this. He warns us about the dangers of wealth because it's powerful. So when I was a kid, my dad had a wood shop. He still does. Had a wood shop in the garage, and he'd always be making things and remodeling the house. And so we always want his son to come in there and work with him. I had zero interest. I did not want to go out there. And he would try to tell me, here's how you operate these power tools. Here's a table saw. Here's how you start it. Here's how you run boards through. And then immediately, he would begin to instill in me a healthy fear of his power tools, and so he'd start the, the table saw and we'd you know, push a board through and you got to get the stick and you got to push it with the stick because if you don't, here's what could happen. And he shows me his fingers and he says, well, this is one time when I ran this through a bandsaw and I thought it got cut off and your, your dog ate it. You can see the blood stains right there on the floor. Luckily, it was still attached, got it sewed back together. Looks like this now. And I'm like, thanks for inviting me here, dad. This is great. I'm really excited that we get to work. But he wanted me to have a healthy fear because these tools were powerful. I think the same is true with money is money is one of those powerful tools that you, you got to have a healthy fear of because it's one of those things that it can produce um, incredible results in the world. It can help push God's purposes forward. It can create human flourishing, but it's also something that you have to use responsibly because if you don't, it can have some really bad consequences. And I think one of the most devastating consequences when it comes to wealth is that it can act as a pseudo-savior, a counterfeit God, or as the Bible says, an idol. 
If you go back to the garden when humanity lost its relationship with God, we all since then have had cosmic daddy issues. We've all been desiring that relationship. We all know that we're broken and inside we're full of shame. And so what we try to do is we try to protect ourselves from other people seeing who we truly are. And so we put designer fig leaves on and we just say, no, 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 I got it all put together. We're trying to hide the shame. And that's what money can often do is it can do, it it can give you the thing that you lost in the garden. It can act as a God substitute. I usually say it, and if you've been in Rooted, I say it like this, it can It promises to give us significance, satisfaction, and security. So let's look at those. First one is significance. Uh, Proverbs says this, There is one who pretends to be rich, but has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, but has great wealth. So it was a couple thousand years ago, and there was people then who were pretending to be rich, but they didn't actually have any money. Now, why would somebody do that? Why would you pretend to be rich? Well, because we equate wealth with some sort of importance or significance. And we, we do that. There's a multi-billion dollar industry that have knockoff luxury goods, right? You got your Folex on, you got your Fuji shoes, you're just looking like a G, you got it all put together, except, you know, it's turning your wrist green, but who cares? Nobody can tell from afar that it's not real. He says that the rich are wise in their own eyes. One who is poor and discerning sees how deluded they are. Newsweek recently came out with an article that said, rich people may be smarter, but the lower class is wiser. I thought you just came up with that. Like there's all these studies. I'm like, Solomon said that a few thousand years ago. But but, but here's what they they found in the study. Is that those who are of a a lower class economically are more open-minded, willing to take other people's perspective into account and work towards agreement. And so there happens to be this inverse relationship between the more wealth that you have, the less wisdom that you gain. Now, it doesn't tell us why this happens, but I have a theory. My theory is that when we are good in one area of our life, so let's say it's we make good financial decisions, we know how to make money, something like that, we go from, I do really well, to, in this area, to, I do really well in life. Like, I know what I'm doing here, and so I must know what I'm doing everywhere else. We start to, what my dad says is we start to buy into our own press. We really think we are that guy. And so we think, well, because I know how to make money, I must be really good at relationships and marriage, because that seems to work out for the, no? Okay. I think we all know that this isn't true, but the human heart wants it to be true. Because we can look at all the celebrities on TMZ, all the wealthy billionaires, and go, you know, you've done really well in that one area, but it doesn't seem like that has correlated to success in the other areas. And he says this, he says, the rich and the poor have this in common. The Lord made them both. We're tempted to look at ourselves, and by the way, when we talk about wealth, I'm talking about everyone here. You think, oh, this doesn't apply to me. No, no. Do you feel the air conditioning in the room? It applies to you. You're wealthy. Yeah, we're all wealthy by any standards. By standards today, human history, every one of us is wealthy. And so what we are tempted to do is to look at rich people, either with disdain, thinking, well, they're just greedy and materialistic, or with envy, I wish what they had. Or poor people who have less than us and go, well, they must be a lesser person than us. He says, you'll start to, you'll start to, the, the power of money will start to lessen in your life when you can look at poor and rich and see them as equals. And we don't do that, like, all right, 
let's say after this, you drive down the freeway, you get off the exit, and there is a homeless person sitting right on that corner. In your heart, you don't go, they're just like me. We're the same. We are brothers. No, you don't say that. You think, oh, golly, what a loser. You got to get it together. I mean, or you might feel bad. Oh, God, man, what a mess they are. No, no, no. It says that we, the Lord made us both. And so we start to lessen the power of money and success in our lives when we begin to see people the same. Second is satisfaction. The Lord will not let the righteous go hungry, but he denies the wicked what they crave. So last weekend at this time, I was in Catalina with a bunch of guys here from Seacoast, and we had a great men's trip. Yes, some of you guys are here. I think I saw some of you guys wearing your shirts and stuff this weekend, which is cool. And great trip. Um, I, I told you guys it was going to be awesome. So those who didn't go, you need to go next year because it was really, really cool. And so when we pulled up to this place, um, they gave us a little rundown of, hey, here's what you need to do. Here's where everything is. And by the way, don't use that much water because this is a desert. I thought, well, that's, that's weird. Is we're in an island in the middle of the ocean and it has no water. Like, isn't there something strange? Like, wouldn't that just be so annoying if you found yourself as the first person to land on Catalina and you died of dehydration? How frustrating would that be? Is you're surrounded by water and yet you can, can't find any fulfillment? Well, that's, that's what he's talking about here. Is he says, well, we, we put all of our meaning and our purpose and our satisfaction into money. It's sort of like being surrounded by an ocean of wealth. And yet, no matter how much of it I get and how much of it I consume, I'm still left empty at the end. And then finally, security. The name of the Lord is a fortified tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it a wall too high to scale. So back then, um, the safest place that you could be was within inside the city walls. There's numbers there, and there's also a protection because there's a wall. But if you go outside, that's where the wild animals, that's where foreign armies will invade, that's where the thieves live. And so you wanted to make sure that you were within the city walls. And so what he's saying is we oftentimes look at our wealth and we say, okay, this is going to protect me from the chaos of the world. If I just have a few more resources, if I could just accumulate enough, then I'm going to be able to protect myself. I saw probably the most extreme example of this article in The Guardian, and it was written by a guy who is a, kind of a tech media culture guru, and he was hired to go give a talk. And so he flies into this place. He doesn't know about the audience or anything. He just has flown in um, to give a talk about kind of the things that he's learning. And they pick him up in, an, in a limo, and they drive him three hours into the middle of the desert. And as he's driving in, he sees a private jet la landing next to the ro road that he's on, and he thinks, well, this should be interesting. He eventually arrives at this compound and they take him into a room which he thinks is his green room, but it happens to be the place in which he's going to give his talk. And it's not to an audience, it's to five people. And they sit at a round table and clearly these people are uber wealthy and they start peppering him with different questions. And he finally realizes, here's what he says, he says, I finally realized the CEO of a brokerage house explained that he had nearly completed building his own underground bunker system and asked, how do I maintain authority over my security force after the event? He realized the event is whatever apocalyptic event that may happen in the future that's gonna turn the world upside down and into complete chaos. And he was there to help them think through every way in which they could protect themselves and their families, even as the world crumbles. And so some of them had built these massive underground bunkers, hired a dozen Navy SEALs, stocked it with 
plenty of food and water, even trying to develop robots that could help um, service them while they're uh, underground. I mean, they'd spent millions and millions and millions of dollars. And one of the things they hadn't quite figured out is, okay, if I hire these Navy SEALs, how do I know they're not going to turn on me and take all my stuff? And so I kid you not, they were developing collars that they could put on them. There's other examples of this. In the article, they list people like Elon Musk, who wants to populate Mars, or Mark Zuckerberg, who creates a digital universe called the metaverse. And see, what all of them are trying to do is, he says this, is they were working out what I've come to call the insulation equation. Could they earn enough money to insulate themselves? That's what Solomon said. He says, we see our wealth as a way to insulate ourselves from the dangers of the world that somehow it can keep us safe. If I can just get enough money, I can control a world that feels so out of control. Article ends with, maybe the apocalypse is less something they're trying to escape than an excuse to realize the mindset's true goal. Now listen to this. To rise above mere mortals and execute the ultimate exit strategy. What he's saying is, what their ultimate goal is to finally defeat death. The ultimate exit strategy is how do I go beyond the limitations of my biological clock? How can I transcend humanity? You go back to the Old Testament, there's a story of the Tower of Babel. They built this large temple. And part of the reason why they did this was so that they could avoid God's judgment on their life and potentially another flood that God might send. And so they can just build a tower high enough and safe enough, they'll be able to control an uncontrollable world, even overcome what God throws at them. See, it becomes a false god, is we think, okay, I'm going to do not only what God does, but I'm going to be able to defeat what God does. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. See, we think of this idea of, okay, the, you know, judgment day, we're all going to stand before God and he's going to judge us, but that's not necessarily what this is talking about. The day of wrath could be a day that you and I experience here in this life. It could be the day that we get a phone call that our loved one is gone. It could be those results that we get from our doctor that says our time is limited. It could be the betrayal of a best friend. That moment, that moment right there is full of sorrow and grief. And on that day, you know what you will not do? You will not say, hey, give me that bank account. Let me see how many zeros I have. Oh, okay, I'm good now. You will not say, hey, can you just wheel me in to sit in my car one more time? Oh, my life is complete. None of those things will matter. All of them will be gone. And he says, there's only one place that you're going to call out to, and that's to the Lord. Because that's the only person that can help. That's the only person that can heal. That's the only person that can comfort in those moments. See, what he's trying to point out is that wealth in the end is pretty worthless. And even if wealth is not the thing that you dedicate your life towards, the pseudo-savior that you believe is going to somehow save you from yourself or from the world, it's going to bring you value and meaning and significance, what it will do is it will point to what the thing is that is your pseudo-savior. I don't know if you've ever used one of those um, like pool test strips before where you, you, you take a little test strip and you put it in your pool and then it will tell you kind of the different things that are happening within there, like the pH balance and the hardness of it and the chlorine and all that because you can't just look into a pool and go, yeah, it looks a little low on chlorine right now. 
right? You can't do that. You, you gotta have some objective way to measure what's happening. Well, guess what? The human heart is the exact same way. You cannot look into the human heart and go, yeah, it's a bit greedy right now. It won't, it won't allow you. It's deceptive. It hides from you. Jesus talks about this. And so what we need is we need some sort of objective test to find out what's happening within the human heart. Because we can't look at it. We can't see it ourselves. And so what do we use in order to test where our heart really is spiritually? Scriptures say one of the best tests for where you're at spiritually is look at your money. It's going to give you a good reading on where your heart is. What do you spend your money on? Because that's, what's gonna, that's what, what you really value. That's what you really love. You can say that I love God, that Jesus is my, you know, all, yes, you can say all of those things, but the objective test of the human heart is, well, what are you doing with your money? I listened to an interview this week by uh, two Harvard MBAs, and both of them are Christians, and they uh, graduated from school, doing really well financially, got great jobs, but they weren't satisfied. They wanted to make more money. They wanted to be part of like that 1%. And so what they did was they went back to Harvard and were getting their MBAs and they became a part of this Christian club. And the two guys ended up meeting one another and they were talking about, well, what does it mean to be a Christian who has a lot of wealth? And so one of their projects was they were going to write about this intersection between wealth and their faith. <clears throat> and so what they did was they sent out a survey to about 300 people who had been a part of this Christian club that had also graduated from the Harvard MBA program. And they asked them really like pretty straightforward questions like, how much money do you make? What's your net worth? How much do you give? How much do you spend? What do you invest in? And they started to get all these answers back. And they were shocking the things that they learned. Because these guys had grown up in church, they're Christians, like, yeah, we tithe, all that kind of good stuff. But the answers were not at all what they'd expected. And there's one story that stood out out of the many that stood out to me, and partly because of the verse that he quoted. He quoted this verse, he says, Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Here's why this caught my attention. One, because that was the verse that I read that was a tipping point for what I did, was going to do with my life. I read that and I went, oh yeah, that whole daily bread thing. I've heard that somewhere. Oh, that's what Jesus said. And so for me, it was a decision point where I went, okay, that's what I need to do. But in his story, here's what's interesting. This guy went into business and not just any business. He was a hedge fund manager. He manages billions of dollars. He makes millions and millions and millions of dollars every year. And here was the surprising thing. His net worth was close to zero. I went, how could this be? He says, because this scares me. It's a spiritual liability. And so I don't keep any of it. I make as much money as I can. I work really hard and then I give it all away because I don't want to be that guy. I take this very seriously. So how do we overcome the power that money can have over us? He tells us, Proverbs 3, 9, honor the Lord with your wealth. First thing that Solomon understands and that we need to grasp is that God owns everything. There is nothing that is not his. Like, just what's in your pockets right now? What's in there? Probably a wallet, some keys, some pocket lent. All of it's his. None of it is yours. And you might be tempted to think, no, 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 but I've worked really hard for what I have. Like, I started from the bottom and now we're here. 
Some of you, under 35 got, okay, all right. <laughs> and I think God might respond with, wait a minute, did you decide the time and place where you were born? What about the abilities that you were born with? Those opportunities and those resources, all that was you? Oh, no, no, that was me. Yeah, because it's all mine. Everything that you have, even your abilities themselves, all of that is me. And Jesus elaborates on this. He goes even further and he says, not only um, do I own everything that you have and I have given it to you, which makes you my manager, but I'm gonna make you accountable to me at the end of it. I'm gonna wanna know what you did with what I gave you. So at the end of your life, you're gonna come and we're gonna, we're gonna, you're gonna give me an account. What did you do with everything that I gave you? And so the principle here is honor God with your wealth. And when we hear this, especially us who have maybe been around church for a little bit, we think, okay, honor God with our wealth. The first thing that comes to my mind is I need to tithe 10%. I need to give, okay, I need to give 10%. Yeah, 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 you're right. I need to give 10%. That's not what he says here. No, he'll talk about that, but that's not initially what he says. He says honor God with your, not 10%, with your wealth. So let's imagine that I, I entrusted you with something the only thing I have of value is my house. So I gave you my house. And I said, I'm going to be gone for a couple weeks. Here's access to my house. Just please manage it well. And I come back after my vacation, and I open up the door, and this place is a disaster. Clearly, there's been a bonfire in one of the rooms. Things are crumbling. It is all a mess. But then I turn, and I see that the kitchen is pristine, like untouched. And you go, look, 10% of it is fine. 90% of it, I may have misused a little bit, okay? But 10% of it, I gave back to you, and it looks great, doesn't it? Yeah. And I would go, you're dead to me. You may be dead, dead. I don't know. We'll see how this goes. But I would, not be, I would not be satisfied with if you took care of 10% of my house. Now, let's go back to this. God says, honor me with your wealth. That means all of it. He wants to know what you're doing with 100% of your wealth, he continues on, he says, with the first fruits of your crops. So what he's talking about here is there is an order. There is a priority in which we should use our, our wealth, our resources. Most people, they see the order as spend, save, give maybe if there's any left over. But the Bible says give, save, spend. Give, save, spend. It is a me first versus God first kind of perspective. So the first one, give. What does honoring God look like when it comes to giving? Well, Solomon says that we should give our first fruits of our crops. In that day, your wealth was in your harvest, the crops that you had. And so when you would collect them all, the first 10% would go directly to the temple as a sacrifice to honor God. Now, it actually isn't just 10%. If you do a little research, it's more like 23% if you kind of put all the different tithes and offerings together. But the principle is give in order of your priorities. Here's what I say I prioritize in life. My first love is God. And so what is the first thing that I should give? Give to God. And so before we pay the government, before we pay our mortgage, before we even buy ourselves anything, what is my priority? My priority is he is first, so I'm going to give to him first. And the reason why he asks us to do this is because it reminds us that, one, we're managers, not owners. He's directing us what to do with his money, not ours. And the other is so that we can learn to trust him. Go, God, I don't know how I'm going to make ends meet. I don't know how this is going to work. 
I mean, this doesn't make any, he goes, trust me. Do you believe I'm going to provide for you? Okay, well then show me. Now, if you're a Bible person, you might go, whoa, whoa, Cody, time out. That's the Old Testament. And we don't have to follow the rules of the Old Testament, at least not all of them. You know, like that's for Israel and that's for them and that's for their day. And so we don't live under that law anymore. And I would say, you're right. But there's bad news is we don't live under the Old Testament law anymore. We live under the law of grace, of Jesus. And so now he is our standard. So what is Jesus' standard for giving? What did he give? His life, everything. So our standard is not here's with the law. Our standard is he wants it all. He wants everything. Their interaction between Jesus and the rich young ruler, he's got tons of wealth and he comes and he says, Jesus, what must I do? And Jesus says, I want you to sell all you have and I want you to give it to the poor and then follow me. So for him, it was, I want it all. Zacchaeus gave away 50%. These people just said, and here's the attitude that we have to have. What do you want? It's yours. My Ruta group last session, uh, I know the guys pretty well, especially at the end of the 10 weeks. And, and so uh, we're supposed to do encouragements on week 10. I'm not like a super encouraging guy. You may have gotten that part. I'm not super encouraging. And so I thought I would give them a challenge instead to send them off on their way. And so one of the things that we talked about was, if Jesus came to you as the rich young ruler, what would he ask of you? And since I knew these guys pretty well, I started to kind of get in their kitchen a little bit and say, okay, um, your business, he wants you to sell it tomorrow and give all the money away. Uh, your house, he wants you to sell it and he wants you to give all your money. Your kids, he says, I want those. What's your response? And they were just like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. It's really hard. But that's what he's asking for. He's asking for everything. Now, he may not require everything, but you have to come with open hands and say, okay, Jesus, when you become my savior, you don't just take my sin and my shame. You take all of my best, my worst, and every resource that I have, it's yours. You now get to determine what you want me to do with it. And so, what do we give? You know, we're, we're kind of... Give me the bottom line. Tell me what you want me to do. And I can't answer that question. When it comes to your giving, I can't tell you what you're supposed to do. Now, I can maybe give you some wise counsel, some, some guiding principles. For a couple thousand years, believers have started with 10%. That's why we call it the tithe. Is we say, okay, right off the top, 10% is going to go to God. It shows them that I trust him and that he is my first priority. And so many of us practice that as a, as a minimum. Is, that seems like wise advice. I'm going to start there. But for some of us, um, it's far more than that. So there's these hats around here we saw that says live differently. And we don't just mean like live differently in your sex life and in your morals and in your business, but we mean in every arena of your life, including your finances, because we're called to live differently. And so one of the things that we may have to do is 10%, you may not even notice it. And so we go, no, no, you have to give until it hurts, until you have to live differently. Meaning people who make the same amount as you you can't do what they do because you give away so much. You can't have that second home. You can't go on that vacation. You can't drive that car. Why? Because you give away so much that it causes you to live differently. What does it uh, look like to honor God when it comes to my savings? The wise store up choice food and olive oil, but fools gulp theirs down. So not only should we give, but then we should begin to save and so let's imagine you're here today and you're single, you're not married, but you hope to be one day. Wouldn't it be amazing to enter into a relationship and eventually into a marriage in which you go, hey, by the way, um, 
I was really busy trying to pay off my student loans while I was single. And I, I actually not only paid them off, but I came up with a little bit of a down payment for a future house. That person would go from like a six to an eight really, really quick. <laughs> where you would go, you just got so much more attractive to me. Wow. Wow. Or, or let's imagine that you, for the next few years, you start to live well below your means and you start to put some money into retirement so that, and this has happened, and we have lots of people on staff who are doing this, where you can retire a little bit early and then you can come and work at the church. We, we have lots of people who are doing it. The last few years has been amazing. We've had tons of people retire and say, hey, um, I've been saving money. I'm good. I don't need to make a salary, which I'm like, God bless you. You know, like come on to the staff. I can just come and I can just help. I can just help wherever you need me to. Or what if it's an opportunity that God has for you in the future? We brought to you the last couple of years a couple uh, opportunity to build out the CLC. We said, hey, our Rooted program is doing really well. We have tons of people and it's transforming lives. We need to finish the CLC so we can have room to meet. And here's what's cool. We came to you with a need of about $5 million and almost 50% of it came in the form of cash immediately. Because people have been saving up and going, I'm not going to spend it on myself. I'm just waiting for God to present an opportunity then I'm ready to go. Or we come to you and we say, hey, our ministry partners in Guatemala, they want to help some of the orphans. Here's what we need to do. And you go, okay, cool. Write check, $300,000, one weekend. Because we saved in order to be ready for opportunities God might have. Now, here's the consequence of not saving. The, the rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is a slave to the lender. See, that's the consequence of failing to save and living above our means is now we're just working to survive. We have this debt that's just hanging around our neck and we're dragging around and in our relationship, it's kind of like a third party that we have to like, oh, this is awkward. And, you know, here's our debt again and causes tension. And wouldn't it be great to live without that? What does it look like to honor God when it comes to my spending? Know well the condition of your flocks and pay attention to your herds for riches are not forever, nor does a crown endure to all generations. So remember what we learned. We're managers, not the owner, and that we are one day going to be accountable for what we have done with God's money, and so we better keep account of what we are doing. It means we better track what we're spending on. And so one of the things that God promises us is, if you're faithful to me, I'll be faithful to you. Now, I may not give you all your, all your wants and all of your desires and have it, but what I will do is I will provide for your needs if you're faithful now, there may be some adjustments to expectations there that we have to have, and we have to be okay with, you know what, I'm not going to have X, Y, and Z, but I might get something better. I might find some freedom. I might find some healing in some of my relationships. I don't know what God's going to do, but he says, if you're faithful to me, I'll be faithful to you. And so when we think about spending our money, the first thing we should do is we should consult the owner. God, this is your money, not mine. What do you want me to do with it? What neighborhood do you want me to live in? What kind of car do you want me to drive? How much do you want me to give? How much do you want me to save? How much do you want me to spend? What, what kind of lifestyle do you want me to live? Because you know what's best for me. I don't know what's best. And so this is your money. How would you like me to spend it? And then once you know that, then you've got to set a budget. Say, okay, God, here's what you've called me to give. Here's what you want me to save. Here's what you want me to spend. And then I'm going to stick to it. One of the biggest gifts that I've had um, having kind of this turning point in my faith journey when it comes to money is the freedom I've experienced from having to care about having enough. Like, I just see people walking around just waited and stressed and freaked out, and I have not worried a day in the last 10 years. Not because I have a lot. I 
barely have enough to make the bills sometimes, but I know that he's got me. As long as I'm following what he's told me to do. And so here's the here's crazy thing is I don't know how to log into my bank account anymore. It used to be a daily, hourly thing that I would do. I haven't logged in in years. Because what Amy and I do is we pray about it. We set our budget. We know what we're supposed to do. And then I just say, hey, are we living within our budget? Yeah, good. That's all I need to know. Because I know how obsessed I can get. And I know how stressed. And I can want to take control. And I want to, no, no, no. And then she just tells me, hey, do we got it? Okay, then we got it. Some of us, we're not good at any of this. We're living way above our means and we're not spending well, we're not saving, we're not giving, and maybe we're gonna need some advice, some wise counsel. And so we try to provide classes around here. Financial peace is one of the things that we do. It happens a couple times a year. You can jump in and there'll be some people who um, can kind of give you some next steps on how to be more faithful uh, in your finances. But here's the end result. He says, then your barns will will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. And I think that's, that's the goal. He doesn't say, I'm going to give you bigger barns and more barns, and you're going to have so many barns, you're not even going to do all, all these barns and vats, and it's going to be crazy. No, he says, I'll make sure it's filled. You'll be good. You're not going to starve. I'm going to make sure you, your needs are taken care of. And along the way, even when you don't get everything that you want, I'm going to have you experience maybe the thing that you've been searching for all along, which is peace and comfort and healing, and freedom. So I'm, I'm uh, if you know me very well, I'm, I can be a little cynical sometimes. And if I heard a pastor give a talk about money, one of my first things that I would ask is, now is this not self-serving a little bit? Like you're up there talking about money, and then you want us to give you money, and then that money is going to go, what, into your pocket? Don't think that, I know you've thought it, okay? I know you've thought it. You've asked me before, all right? Don't that holier than thou. And so here's one of the things I try to do when I talk about money. And this is not for me to boast. There's people far, far, far more generous than I am. And I, I've, had a huge, um, I've had a huge head start in this area because Amy and I are both pastors' kids. We grew up in families that gave and gave generously. But I like to just kind of say, hey, I'm with you guys on this deal, I'm not going to make a penny more if you give or you don't give. This has nothing to do with me. And Amy and I, we have decided that we want to try to live as an example. Um, And again, people are far more generous than we are. But we just try to say, hey, look, we're with you guys on this deal. And so I make an average income just like what a teacher in school district would make. But Amy and I have decided that we will never give less than 10% and we're going to try for most years to give 20 or more percent of our money back to the church. And here's why. A couple reasons. One, we don't want to be consumed and have a pseudo savior in our finances. The other is we want you to understand that we are with you. We are not uh, trying to get your money. We're not trying to take your money. We're just trying to make sure that your money doesn't take you. And so we're going, okay, here we are. And I, I did not grow up in a church like this. I've never heard a lot of pastors talk about this. It feels very uncomfortable for me to be transparent about my own finances in front of thousands of people on a weekend. But I just want you to know, we're with you. Because as a community, we want to put God first and then his purposes in the world. And so one of the things that I've experienced, obviously myself, but then I've seen countless other times, is when we do this, God provides not necessarily with more money, but he seems to provide in some better ways, in like our relationships and in our faith. 
And so we are people who want to, we want to go first. And we want people to join us in this. And I don't give because I expect anything back and I don't want any kind of, oh, wow, that's incredible. No, no, no. People far generous, doing far better. But we just want you to know we're with you in the middle of this. So here's my last question. Is if someone knew nothing about you, they have never met you, never had a conversation with you, nothing. All that they had was an access to your bank statement. Maybe all your assets and it has all your income and it has all your spending. It has a big financial picture of who you are. What would your money say about you? What would it say that you value? What would it say that is at the center of your life? Would it be God or would it be fun or comfort? or safety, or pleasure, or beauty, or what would your money say about you? And I don't want this to just be like a theoretical question. My challenge for you is this week is to talk with either your spouse, or your brooder group, or a close friend, and say, okay, if I look at my money, what is my money saying? And you might even have to say, here's how much I make, here's how much I have, here's how much I spend, here's how much I give. If you're willing to be that kind of transparent, because you really want to know what's happening within your heart, Ask the question, what does my money say about me? Let's pray. Lord God, you have been so generous to us. Um, not, not just financially, of course that's true, but in so many arenas of our life, Lord God. And we make it far more difficult than it needs to be. The fact is that you are the only one that can save us. You are the only one that can satisfy us. You're the only one in which we can find real security. And yet we look in so many other places. Oftentimes it's in our own wealth. And so Lord, as people who want to um, follow you and want to honor you with our wealth, uh, we come with open hands and we say, it's yours. Whatever you want us to do with it, it's yours. And Lord, we just pray that at the end of the day, we can say that we have honored you with everything that we have, including our wealth. Lord, we love you. To your name we pray. Amen. All right, you guys can stand with me. Thank you guys so much for being here this week. And there may be some people out in the courtyard you can talk to you about that Financial Peace University and when the next sign-up for that is. Other than that, we'll see you next week. God bless. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we also have live services out in our West Auditorium on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings. Or you can always join us live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time.